Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delight, show number 91, Jack Skillingstead. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Hello, yes, I hope everyone is fine. This is a glorious morning for Oral Delight. I'll give you a little heads up what's happening in today's show. Poetry comes from Mike Allen. Flash Fiction comes from Brenda Cooper. We have a fact article by none other than Mr. Fred Heimball. Main fiction, as you heard there, comes from Jack Skillingstead. And our final fact article today is Proto-SF Part 2 by Amy H. Sturgis. There you go. I hope that is a fun show for all. Do join me. So, stepping into the editorial of this fine audio magazine, I am Tony C. Smith. This is the first and probably the, the only one where Oral Delights is recorded out in the open. If you've been listening or if you kind of signed up for the monthly donations, which is a great little bit of um, help to the Starship so far, you'll find out that I'm over at my mum's for a couple of weeks. Just she's been in hospital. I'm just kind of helping out. And... It's been where I've been recording some shows, and I've just sat down to do this show, and a whole load of workmen, starting with jacks and diggers and everything, and the noise is unbearable. So I've come down to actually my childhood place where we used to go ice skating on this pond, where we used to swim in this pond, and everything like that. So that's where we are, recording Oral Delights. So hopefully you'll bear with us, because a lot of this might be on the hoof, so if I forget little blurbs and little bits plugs for people i'm i'm recording this on the hoof and like see i might forget someone's narration or someone who did this and did that so yes but there you go that is the editorial this week first off then is poetry by mike allen and you know mike allen button bin nebula award nominee it is narrated by kate baker the strip search by mike allen read by kate baker The gate said, abandon all hope. I thought I'd tossed all my hope away, but when I stepped through the gate, it still pinged. One of the guards slithered out of its seat, snarling as it drew forth a wand. Come here, it hissed. It seems you are still holding out hope. Its crusted hide was a Venus landscape up close. It brushed that cold black wand all over my skin, put it in places I don't want to talk about. Snaggle fangs huffed in my face. Sir, step over here, please. Then the strip search began. My flesh rolled up and tossed aside from mushy sifting, bones x-rayed stacked in narrow rows, marrow sucked out, tested, spit back in. They made me open mind, heart, soul, 
shook them out like sacks of flour, panned the contents. For every nugget of twinkling hope, glistening courage, applying lethal aerosol to any motion that could be ascribed to love or will or malingering dreams, sparing only a few squirming morsels for later snacking. Once they were done, they made me pick up my own pieces. I did the best I could without a mirror. Then my guard kicked me out with a literal kick, sent me rolling down the path to my final destination. I'll be honest with you, it's no picnic here. But my friends, I still have hope I do. I'm not going to tell you where I hid it. There you go, don't forget all copyright is Mr. Mike Allen's. Next up is Flash Fiction, and it comes from Brenda Cooper, who has published over 30 short stories in various magazines and anthologies. Her books include The Silver Ship and the Sea, which won the 2008 Endeavour Award, and The Riding the Wind. A third novel in the series, Wings of Creation, will be out from Tor Books in November 2009. She is a technology professional, a futurist, and a writer living in the Pacific Northwest, with three dogs and two other humans. She blogs and tweets and all the other paraphernalia that goes with that. And she's just started a monthly science column over at futurismic.com. You can find her site at brenda-cooper.com as well. This story first appeared in the magazine Nature. And it's narrated by Diane Severson. Diane, I hope you are well and fine. Diane is a mother-to-be, so I hope all is well on there, Diane. Do keep in touch. I'm saying do keep in touch. Diane does keep in touch, but I never kind of answer emails back. Sorry, Diane. It's not that I don't want to. Just so many things going on. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present. A Hand and Honor by Brenda Cooper. First appeared in Nature magazine. Narrated by Diane Severson. John Justice stretched up, fingers scraping at cool morning air then bent down, cupping his calves, the nanskin registering his fingertips as data points, pressure, heat, sweat, angle. The hum of the crowd, the band's drums and wind instruments, and even the race announcer seemed far, far away. He already knew what medals felt like. Before his turn in the never-ending war, his men's relay team won gold in London. Last month, he'd killed the world record for the 10,000-meter run, coming in just over 24 minutes. No medal for that. Twenty or so news stories, a political cartoon or two, and a combination of joy and bitterness sticking so deep in his gut he threw up all over the course when he was done. Today, his race would be one-on-one against the man whose record still stood even after John beat it. Shui Smith an improbably tall Chinese-American who held the world record in the 10,000 meter, who'd still hold the official record, even after today. Discrimination was a bitch. Change was tested for like steroids. He nearly jumped as his coach, Nikolai, placed his metal hand on the small of his back. Don't think about it. Just run. Run for all of us. It was nearly time. I'll win. He nodded at Nikolai, forcing a smile, staring into the shorter, blockier man's deep brown eyes. Nick's naked hope made him clap the man on the back. I know it matters. Nikolai headed for the finish line, 
As the noise and the movement swallowed Nick, John muttered, Damned exhibition. He had always yearned to be the fastest man in the world. The best war-wounded John could become, for child John was the fastest unman. Kim Moon waited for him on the way to the starting blocks, looking more like a debutante than an engineer medic, her figure slim and curvy in a one-piece shorts outfit. She reached up and hugged him. Good luck. He didn't have to fake a smile for her. It's all your fault. They're your legs, she retorted. The best I've ever made. One of her customers had new hands and feet with built-in temperature controls and had climbed Everest and K2. After an artificial hand replaced one eaten by frostbite, the climber had made news by chopping off the functioning hand for another of Kim's sculptures. Without Kim, he would have walked and run, but never raced. She was all the magic of math and engineering held together with heart. He leaned down and kissed her forehead, savoring her honeysuckle scent. As John approached the starting blocks, Shui stood up from a hamstring stretch and extended a hand. John took it. Where he'd expected to see challenge in the notoriously cocky runner's eyes, he swore he saw fear. His nerves screamed at it. Why did you agree to this? Shui shook John's hand, replying softly, My brother lost a hand in the war. He let go and turned to his starting blocks. Thank you, John said to his back. John swept Shui's fears, and his own, into a deep breath and puffed them out, relaxing his cheeks. He rocked a bit, setting his calves, running a quick mental skip across the sensors in his skin, checking the breeze, temperature, and humidity. He struggled to close his ears as the announcer droned on. Kim's legs, his, wouldn't win by themselves. He mentally shrank the world to a bubble around him and the long, slender corridor of space on the track in front of him. The starting gun swept him forward, following Shui. He fell in right behind, body straight, arms pumping. No need to pass. Yet. He let the first round of the track go, calibrating, biding time. His legs were all he had. He'd refused changes to his lungs and circulatory system, wanting some purity. Important not to overrun his breath. He was about to pass the fastest human ever, the fastest pure human. He threw the thought away. A break in stride or a stumble could steal the race, counting and breathing and moving, just the track under him and the narrow corridor, the wind on his teeth. Breath and wind and stride and arms. His head turned a little, as if the force of Shui's run called it. Shui didn't return John's darting glance, just kept going, head up, surging. To match him, John told his legs to give more, asked his heart to keep up breath and wind and spine and floor, data instead of Shui's desperate face. Another turn around the track, a matched pair. The image of two feet crossing at the same time raced through John's head, an honorable outcome, except he was a racer. The sound of Shui's breath fell to behind John's shoulder, the finish line blurred under him. Nick's arms encircled him. Kim leapt up on Nick's back. Nick grabbed her under the knees, boosting her like a child. She looked down, her joy at the wind overtaken by a crease in her brow. Why so slow? He shook his head, unsure how to explain it. I'll be right back. Shui jogged well past him now, sweat dripping down his back. John caught him. 
I hope your brother is proud of you. Shui winced. He went back to the war. They put him in special ops because his hand-eye coordination was so much better than anyone else's. He looked away. After his enhancements, his hand was steadier than anybody else's. Shui had lost face to honor a brother with no more change than a hand. A man who had done well for himself. Shui continued. He's dead. They gave him a purple heart. He turned, and without so much as a smile, the fastest man in the world walked away from the fastest unman in the world. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Brenda Cooper. Again, I'll put a link on the site to Brenda's site. Do pop over there and do check out her article over at Futurismic. Next up is Mr. Fred Heimbaugh with his review of Iron Dream. Fred, how are you doing, sir? Brace yourself, folks. Today I'm going to review a deeply, deeply weird, disturbing, twisted, and just plain sick novel written by Norman Spinrod back in 1972 called The Iron Dream. Over Christmas break, during a long drive to a vacation condo in Florida, there happened one of those coincidences that make life interesting and book reviewing easy. We were sitting in a positively charming little Scottish restaurant, eating McBreakfast, when I leaned over to the wife and asked, Did you notice the man who took our order was wearing a Hitler mustache? She had not noticed, although in her defense I'll mention that the man was dark-skinned, not only the low color contrast, but the sheer culture shock of a non-white Hitler made the mustache difficult to notice. Nevertheless, incidents like this one, or that Adolf Hitler birthday cake that was in the news at Christmas time, do you remember a couple was shocked that a bakery would refuse to decorate a birthday cake for their child, whom they had named Adolf Hitler? These incidents serve as a reminder of the enduring toxicity of all things Hitlerian. Hitler owns the franchise on evil. He rules it. The attraction-slash-repugnance that surrounds Nazism is thanks in large part to the arrogance of the movement, but also somewhat due to its style sense. Wouldn't communists be regarded with a lot more dread if only they wore black leather and decorated themselves with skulls? This guarantees that the Nazis will continue to be the first call boogeymen for novels, TV, and films for the foreseeable future. Have you ever seen a Hitler mustache in the wild? I doubt it. Have you ever wondered why they never call them Charlie Chaplin mustaches? Of course not. Nazis calibrated every detail of their movement to maximize both evil and the appearance of evil, so some people have reacted by trying to quarantine Hitler, defining him as a kind of unique, unrepeatable monster who cannot and must not be understood. If a movie or book examines him too closely, critics worry that Hitler may be humanized. Norman Spinrod is not worried. In order to write The Iron Dream... He had to get inside Hitler's head in a way few would attempt and fewer could pull off. The Iron Dream is nothing less than a novel from an alternate universe, plus an afterward to the second edition, by a fictional critic. In that alternate universe, a young, passionate veteran of World War I immigrates from Germany to New York City 
becomes a science fiction illustrator and then fanzine editor, then writes a Hugo award-winning novel. That novel, which makes up the bulk of Norman Spinrod's book, is called Lord of the Swastika. Its author is, you guessed it, Adolf Hitler. Think of the months Spinrod spent on this project. This Lord of the Swastika is 240 pages long. All that time he immersed, he wallowed in the Hitler mindset. How did he avoid going crazy? Come to think of it, do we know he didn't go crazy? I can think of only one comparable effort. The Screwtape Letters, uh, where author C.S. Lewis imagined how an experienced demon might mentor a rookie tempter through a series of advisory epistles. But Lewis's book is very short, and intentionally so, as he explained, quote, It almost smothered me before I was done. It would have smothered my readers if I had prolonged it, unquote. How Spinrod maintained his oxygen supply while diving in the muck of Hitler's brain is anyone's guess. Lord of the Swastika is a relentless cycling of a short list of obsessions. Hygiene, manly strength, tight black leather, mass spectacle, and above all, violence. It is porny to a degree that I fondly hope has never been surpassed anywhere. It describes a future Earth despoiled by nuclear fallout and overrun by degenerate mutants who are dirty, smelly, ugly, weak, and surrounded by squalor. The burden of the story lies in the need of the true humans to purify themselves by destroying the mutant infiltrators and the mind-controlling dominators who lead them. This the humans accomplish only when a hero of unusually pure genetic stock rises to take control of the government and launch an unspeakably bloody war against the whole world. The battle scenes are especially self-indulgent. Although the warfare is mechanized, the climaxes inevitably require hand-to-hand -hand combat, where the hero, named Ferrek Yager, smashes the brains of his enemies with a giant metal truncheon of magical power. Yes, really, magical power. The afterword, written by the fictional critic Homer Whipple, gotta love that name, Homer Whipple, has stolen much of my fun by making the most obvious points. There we find a catalog of Hitler's obsessions, with violence and hygiene battling for preeminence. There's also the kooky emphasis on the design of flags, buildings, pageants, and uniforms, always attributed to the hero. That makes sense when you remember the attention Hitler paid to details like the cut of military uniforms. We are also told of Hitler's reputation as a Don Juan at science fiction conventions, and this fact is compared with the subtext of passages like this one. Quote, he chanced to look at best. The young hero was married to the controls of the tank and to his machine gun, his face was set in a steel grimace of determination. In his blue eyes was a fierce and iron ecstasy. For an instant their eyes met, and they were united in the comradely communion of battle, transfigured together in a red mist beyond time or fatigue. Through the metal of the tank, the common weapon which they shared, their souls seemed to touch and merge for an instant in the greater communion that was the racial will. Unquote. <laughs> Yowie. 
There are Freudianisms as well. The outstretched arm salute and a rocket that ends the novel, quote, on a pillar of fire to fecundate the stars, unquote. All this is described by Homer Whipple, who then writes, quote, What is open to dispute is whether or not Hitler was consciously aware of what he was doing, unquote. Yes, great stuff, but marred slightly by the reader's sure knowledge that such a negative essay would never be included alongside the novel it criticizes. Still, verisimilitude is mostly maintained. The essay's author is ignorant where he ought to be. He firmly believes a society based on the violent enforcement of racial purity is impossible. He is not even sure Hitler is an anti-Semite. He suspects it, but Hitler's anti-communism argues against it. In this alternate universe, it is the communists who have murdered five million Jews. Also unnoticed by our friend Mr. Whipple is the pun in the name of the hero, Ferrek Jager. The first name obviously refers to the Latin ferrum for iron, but why ferric? The naive translation would be iron-ick or ironic. It looks like the author Spinrod is sharing a joke with us over the head of his alter ego, Homer Whipple. Whipple cannot know the effect of his last sentence, described by Theodore Sturgeon in the book's real introduction as, quote, the most eloquent and penetrating shout of indignation I have ever experienced, unquote. Here's that last sentence by Homer Whipple, quote, no, although the specter of world communist domination may cause the simple-minded to wish for a leader modeled on the hero of Lord of the Swastika, in an absolute sense, we are fortunate that a monster like Ferrick Yager will forever remain confined to the pages of science fantasy, the fever dream of a neurotic science fiction writer named Adolf Hitler, unquote. Whipple is also unaware of the weird parallels between events in the novel and events in our own real timeline. Ferrick Yager's rise to power and conquest of the evil empire of the East follows Hitler's. Yager's lieutenants can be identified. Himmler, Röhm, and the amusing yet sinister Goebbels have fictional representatives in the novel. That Hitler, who moves to New York City in 1919 in the alternative timeline, could have anticipated these characters and their fates is impossibly prescient. Spinrod may have meant it as another sly joke, but it comes off as a bit lazy or self-indulgent. The funniest page comes at the very beginning, uh, right at the beginning of the book, uh, the one where, quote, other science fiction novels by Adolf Hitler, unquote, are flogged. But the fact is, I chuckled on almost every page. That's why I'm surprised Theodore Sturgeon, in his introduction, blasted a rival critic who wrote of the Iron Dream that it, quote, ceased to be funny after the first 20 pages, unquote. Sturgeon's reaction to that was a one-word paragraph leaden with sarcasm. That word was funny. Eh, they're both wrong. I found it hilarious from beginning to end. 
I suppose that means I'm a bad person. But we knew that already. Go on, my son. Excellent. Fred, You keep on them coming. Do you know what I mean? Don't worry about time. You know what I mean? There's plenty of time. Just keep them coming. Thanks, Fred. So the main fiction today is by Jack Skillingstead. Jack Skillingstead is a writer who's been professional since August 2002 when Gardner Doz was brought Dead Worlds for Asimov's science fiction magazine. It appeared in the June 2003 issue and made the Sturgeon Award shortlist and was repeated in Doz Wars' best year's best science fiction, 21st edition. Since then, he sold around 30 short stories and appeared in Asimov's Science Fiction and Fantasy, Realms of Fantasy, Fast Forward 2, and the Solaris Book of New Science Fiction, as well as assorted year's best anthologies. His work has been translated into Spanish, Russian, Romanian, and Greek. It has been dramatised, podcasted, and it's even been dissected in university classrooms. He's lived most of his life in Seattle, Washington. In September, Fairwood Press is bringing out the novel Harbinger by Jack Skillingstead as a trade paperback. And in October, Golden Griffin Press will publish a collection of short fiction, Are You There? and other stories. So things are starting to kick off for Jack Skillingstead. Narration today is a fine narration by David Munger. David Munger has narrated a couple of times for the Starship Sofa. He did a God Seller story and he's done a couple more which are in the pipeline. And hopefully we'll get some more off David very soon. It was our good friend Larry Santuru that put us in touch with David. So Larry, thank you so much for that. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present. Are You There? by Jack Skillingstead. Dietry took the door because he wanted to see the look on the butcher's face. That put his partner Raymond Farkas in the alley, where Dietry assumed he was wet and not too happy. The hallway smelled like mildew and Chinese food. There were two light fixtures between 307 and the stairs, and the one closer to Dietry was burned out. Muffled television voices spoke from the other rooms, but 307 was quiet. Dietrich stood in the hall a long time, too long, his stunner drawn but pointed at the floor, finger outside the trigger guard. He had the passkey, but he couldn't move. A memory of plate glass coughing into the atrium, suburban sunshine, string music and shredded shoppers, blood on the terrazzo, white dowel of bone poking through mangled flesh and skin flap, the hand he used to hold. Dietry was sweating. The man in 307 shredded his victims one at a time with some art, but no political considerations, at least none that Dietry was aware of. Why the Paralyzing Memory Association? Dietry started at the unmistakable buzz-pop of a stunner burst, and it sounded from beyond the room on the other side of the door. He fumbled the passkey, dropped it, and used his foot. Wood splintering crash, jams split, the door banged into the wall, and Dietry went through, sweeping the empty room with his weapon. Curtains billowed. The burst had come from the alley. Dietry clambered onto the fire escape. November rain blew over him, chill on the back of his neck. There were no lights in the alley unless you counted the checkerboard windows of the other buildings. Dietry clanged down the zigzag stairs, iron rail cold on his hand, and dropped to the buckled concrete. The garbage smell was wet and ripe, bags of it piled around the dumpster. One of the bags groaned and stood up. A man. 
Dietry pointed his stunner. It's me, the man said, raising an open hand. Ray. Jesus Christ, Dietry said. Did you hit him? Yeah, but he must have been wearing one of those repelling vests. Did you see his face? Nope. Well, don't worry. It's not a total loss. I got to feel his knife. It's real sharp. Farkas' shirt was wet, but in the bad light, who knew it was blood? Then Raymond Farkas extended his hand, which was holding a flat module made of black metal. Dietry holstered his weapon and took it. Farkas swayed, and Dietry gripped his shoulder with his free hand. He dropped that, Farkas said, and collapsed forward. Dietry dropped the module himself when he tried to catch his partner. Dawn had begun to pale the sky by the time Dietry returned home and climbed the newly installed set of exterior stairs to the second floor. Inside, he stood at the window with a bottle of beer for a few minutes, not thinking. It was as quiet as it ever got in the grid. Dietry knew his ex-wife, who occupied the lower half of the narrow two-story slot house, would be waking up soon. Sometimes, when she noticed his light on or heard him shuffling around after being awake all night, she came up to the bolted door that separated the two halves of the house, wanting to talk. Dietry hated that. He referred to Barbara as his ex-wife, but the truth was they had never legally divorced. A divorce would automatically have evoked the Space and Occupancy Act and forced them to vacate the relative spaciousness of the home they had legally shared as man and wife. And the other truth was, at least the truth Dietry allowed, they both loved the house more than they had ever loved each other. The Space and Occupancy Act was only one of many laws designed to encourage the sacred tradition of marriage. The SAOA hadn't existed at the time of Dietry's previous marriage, so that particular example of sacredness had been allowed to go to hell in its own traditional manner. Dietry turned off the lamp, unrolled his Apple Six scroll, and powered it up. White Echo was waiting for him. Hi, he typed. I was almost asleep. Her words appeared rapidly, a quick and flawless key patter. That's okay. I know it's late. I just wanted to say hi. And you said it, but don't go. I, I miss you all day. I miss you too, Dietry typed, and he meant it. But he was also glad White Echo, a.k.a. Kimberly, was not an entity who could climb a flight of stairs and knock on his door. Are you all right? Kimberly asked. Peachy, it's Farkas. We followed a tip tonight, and he got cut, and it was at least partly my fault. How is it your fault? Dietry briefly described the situation at the co-op apartment building. I don't see how it was your fault, Kimberly said. I had the door, and I waited too long. The butcher must have sensed something was up. Anyway, forget it. How was your day? Delightful and lonely. That's life in the big city. The lonely part, anyway. Delight is a little harder to come by. You have a knack for it. After a long pause, during which Dietry began to think she had been disconnected, Kimberly typed, It doesn't have to be lonely. Dietry's fingers hovered over the keypad like hummingbirds assessing the possibility of nectar. 
He didn't want to get into it again. Brian? He gave it another few beats, then typed, Damn it, I'm sorry. Barbara's at the door. Play dead. Ha! I can't do that. She knows I'm in here. She was already awake when I got home. The lights were on. She must have heard me come in. Lord of the lies. They floated him above a nasty splinter of his personality. Okay, Kimberly typed. I'm really sorry. Yes. Then, it's okay. I have to sleep anyway, alone as usual. Usually, he could redirect her mood, but he was bone-tired this morning, so even though he knew it was lame, Dietri replied, I'm really sorry, and gotta go now, and good night." He sighed and turned off the scroll and let it roll back into a tube. Then, God played a mean trick on him. There was a tentative knock on the interior door, followed by a slightly more aggressive knock. And Barbara's voice, Brian, I've got coffee. Dietri turned in his chair and stared wearily at the door. He waited, imagining her on the other side. She didn't knock again, and after a while her footsteps retreated down the stairs. Dietri and Raymond Farkas were para-police detectives working a dumpy quarter grid of the Seattle-Tacoma sprawl. The local inhabitants paid their salaries. They didn't have to pay, of course. It was a free country. And the para-detectives were free to ignore the non-paying enclaves, though Dietri had never done that, and wouldn't. The real murder police worked the tonier grids and had the terror watch, which sucked resources like a starving baby. Dietri slipped down to the crime lab of the real police department where he had a few friends from the old days. He showed the module to a man who looked like a cross between a boiled egg and a vulture in a white lab coat. It's a loved one, the man, whose name was Sturing, said. An old memory stirred briefly in the refuse at the back of Dietri's mind. Those dead person things? Right. Guy's dying, but still coherent enough. Got all his marbles rattling around, or it's a living will thing. They hook him up and make one of these gizmos from his engrammatic template. Fries his brain, but he's not going to live anyway. End of the day, dear old Uncle Ned can still talk to you. Respond just like the original, all that. Parlor trick. There was a vogue, then the creep factor killed it. Will this one work? Stewing rummaged round in a junk box, tried a couple of adapters, found one that fit, and plugged the module into a computer. After a moment, Hello? appeared on the screen. It works, Stewing said. No voice? He shrugged. You'd have to noodle around with it. Take the adapter. You can plug it into your scroll if you want. Hello? appeared under the first hello. Why does it keep saying that? Dietrich asked. Is it broken? How do I know? Ask it. Dietri typed, Are you broken? They waited, but no more words appeared. There's your answer, Sturing said. Maybe. Dietri had a weird feeling. He unplugged the loved one and pocketed the adapter. Dietri met Raymond Farkas at a bar on 2nd Avenue called the Scarlet Tree, though its patrons referred to it affectionately as the Bloody Stump. Farkas eased into a chair, holding his right hand lightly over his ribs, where the blade had gone in, scoring bone. 
He was older than Dietri, about thirty pounds overweight, and had a walrus mustache, which was going gray. Hurt? Dietri asked. What do you think? I think it probably hurts. You're probably right, Farkas said. The doc said it was a razor or the butcher's usual scalpel. Guess he'd know. It was the middle of the day, and they were drinking pints of amber ale. It didn't matter, since they were private employees. It was kind of a perk. Dietri drank deep and then put his glass down and said, I'm sorry, Ray. What about? There was foam in his mustache. Sorry I forgot your birthday. What else? Jesus Christ. I'm sorry I almost got you killed. Farkas shrugged. I had the alley. You flushed him, then it was on me. I blew it. I didn't exactly flush him. Farkas shrugged again. What else do you want to talk about? That module thing he dropped. It was a loved one. You know what that is? No shit. Yeah, I know what they are. Farkas had already finished his amber. He waved at the bartender and she brought over another one. Dietri still had a ways to go on his first. Pair of beers for the pair of dicks, the bartender said in a friendly way. She was fortyish, attractive in a twice-around-the-block kind of way. Dietri had once seen the inside of her bedroom and other things. Farkas grabbed up his fresh pint and drained it by a third. You get anything off the loved one? No. Could be a good break. It won't talk. Eh, get a techie to cannibalize it. That way you at least get the basics. If it was a relative of our guy, then maybe we have a name. Dietri drank his ale. What's the matter, you don't want to take it apart? Dietri shrugged. His shrugs weren't as eloquent as Farkas's, and he knew it. Why not, Farkas said. Next time, Dietri said, I'm on the alley. Whatever. They drank a couple more pints and watched the ball game, which was a disaster. When they left the scarlet tree, Dietri waited while his partner eased into a cab. Farkas was on his first marriage and had a 14-year-old daughter. Dietri once attended a Patriots of July party at the Farkas' apartment. It had been boozy, but not overboard. Plenty of kids, loud and friendly, the whole building population joining in, spilling out into the street. Farkas had a life. Dietri wanted to keep it that way. 2 a.m. Dietri was staring at the chat window, center screen of his scroll. I miss you, White Echo, a.k.a. Kimberly, said. But I don't want to keep you here on this dumb thing. I need a real flesh-and-blood man. Brian, can you understand? Dietrich finished another bottle of beer and set the dead soldier on the floor next to the rest of the empty platoon. After a while, he typed, I understand. We've been talking for months, Kimberly said. Yes. We don't even use the chat enhancements. I thought you liked the writing part. I do. It's old-fashioned and sweet. But, Dietri typed, But I want to meet you. Dietri didn't type anything. Then, being funny, he typed, I'm married. No kidding? Oh my god! Dietri smiled, but Kimberly wasn't going to be diverted. Listen to me, she typed. I'm listening. He twisted the cap off another beer. We're the walking wounded. We've talked all about that. What happened with my first husband, your mother and the bomb, the way your father checked out, 
the way things have gone with your relationships, all that stuff. Dietrich shifted on his chair, drank, held the cold bottle in his lap. But we're cowards if we don't try to love again. Dietrich put the bottle down and typed, I do love you. Love behind a firewall isn't real, Kimberly typed. It's real. Brian, I want to take the next step now. I want to meet you. I want to go for a walk with you. I want to feel your hand in my hand. I want to kiss you. For real. Not just in my head. I want to have a relationship with you. I have to try again. I know. It's scary. True, Dietrich typed. But in a way, this is scarier. Dietrich drank his beer. This is too remote, Kimberly typed. It's okay at first, and then it's kind of sick, I think. Dietrich drank his beer. So what I'm saying is, let's meet, like, for a cup of coffee. It's a simple first step. It doesn't have to be perfect. I think you're afraid it won't be perfect, or that your heart will get broken. Hearts do get broken. But you still have to take a risk. There's no life without risk. Dietrich put his bottle down, almost typed something, then didn't. So, Kimberly typed, next Monday at 10 a.m., I'm going to be at the Still Life Cafe. You know where that is? I'll be there. Dietrich typed, will you be wearing a red carnation in your lapel? Sure. A long beat. Then, Brian, if you're not there, I don't think I can come back online with you. I mean, I won't. I love you, but this keeps me from what I need. A relationship. In real life. I don't want to hurt you, but I have to protect my heart, too. It's okay. You're not going to be there, are you? Dietrich stared at the screen. Goodbye, Kimberly typed. The loved one wouldn't talk. Every night, Dietrich jacked it into his Apple scroll and peppered it with conversational gambits to no avail. But he had a feeling. In the police lab, when the loved one had said, Hello? Hello? Dietrich had sensed more than the automatic response of a software program reacting to the electrical surge of being turned on. He had sensed a presence. Of course, Dietrich was the first to admit he was a little nuts. He was up all night Friday. Just before dawn, he jacked in the loved one and typed, Hi? The word hung on the screen all by itself. Ten minutes elapsed. I know you're in there, Dietrich typed. Then after five minutes, Come on. When he stood up, he was surprised to discover he was drunk enough to feel wobbly drunk enough that the room appeared to shift about, like sub-reality tectonic plates or a cubist painting that tries to show mundane objects from multiple and simultaneous angles, image overlapping. He staggered away from his Miro desk, kicking over most of a dozen empty beer bottles and sending them rolling across the hardwood floor like bowling pins. "'Hello?' he said to the empty room. "'Hello! Hello! Jesus H. Christ!' He blundered into the sofa and collapsed upon it. After a while, Barbara started knocking on the locked interior door. Brian, are you okay? Fuck it, he thought, and he passed out of consciousness, leaving the module running.
The phone woke him, a piercing trill. Better than the auricular implants almost everybody had, though. Voices speaking in your head, the last thing he wanted. He fumbled the phone out of his pocket. Wincing, he said, Deidre. It's Ray. Got another body. Want to see it? Where? Farkas told him. Deidre stuck his head under a cold shower and yelled. He put on a fresh shirt. It was only mid-morning and he was still drunk. At the door he noticed the scroll hooked up to the loved one and running. His messed up little haiku floated on the screen. Hello, I know you're in there. Come on. Dietri hesitated, then left the setup the way it was and went out the door. It wasn't raining, but the streets were wet from the previous night. Puddles shivered in the wind like alien amoebas communicating their loneliness. Dietri stepped between them as he crossed the street, shoulders hunched in his old raincoat, hair still wet, dripping and uncombed from the shower. The coroner's meat wagon was angled into the curb, blinking red lights. The Emmy, whose misfortune it was to cover the grid that encompassed this block, was a woman named Sally Ranger. Dietri had known her for years, a blonde with bird-sharp features and a severely sexual figure. She always dressed impeccably, even now, as though she had been dispatched to rendezvous with an important business client instead of a methodically mutilated indigent. She stepped forward with a clipboard when Dietri arrived. Good morning, she said. Just my opinion, but I don't agree. She handed him the clipboard. Sign here and I can take Mr. Vargas. Who's Mr. Vargas? Your corpse, Sally Ranger said, nodding at the alley where three men stood over something like a heap of rags. One of the men was Raymond Farkas. The other two were from the M.E.'s office. They had a wheeled stretcher and an empty body bag. I'll sign, but hold up a minute. I want to have a look before they move him. He scratched his name on the official form. His hand shook. You want a mint? Sally asked. He looked up. What? A mint. She blew her breath, which was sweet wintergreen, into his face. He scowled at her. Thanks, I'll pass. She shook her head. What, he said. The genius detective, Wonderkind. Dietri had known her since his days with the real police force. Right before his first marriage broke up, he'd conducted a brief, messy affair with her. When she'd started expecting more out of him than he was able to relinquish, he'd ended it, an outcome that hadn't pleased Sally. One question I always wanted to ask you, she said. They had walked into the alley and were approaching the trio of live men and the one deceased. What's that, Sally? Are all you geniuses, by definition, drunken bastards? Farkas looked at him, no expression on his face. Dietri said, no, not by definition. That's more random. He turned to Farkas. So? Arturo Vargas, age 52. Heads over there with some other stuff. Farkas pointed. Bastard standard M.O. I've already taken the pictures. A city uniform preserved the scene, but there wasn't anything in the way of clues. Arturo Vargas's head sat nested in a wet coil of blue-white intestine a few yards from the headless corpse. Rain had collected in the gaping cavity that had once contained the man's viscera. Dietri took a few minutes looking at the layout. Then he said to Sally, Okay, thanks. Don't mention it, she replied. How'd you come up with the name? Dietri asked Farkas. 
Farkas, who was wearing surgical gloves, held up a ratty-looking wallet of faux leather, a kid's wallet with Indians and ponies and teepees machine-stitched around the edge. Dietrich snapped on a pair of gloves and took the wallet and opened it. There was a driver's license, expired by more than a decade. The faded photo showed a much younger and healthier-looking head, smiling. There were some other pictures in the wallet, of a plump, attractive woman in her thirties, and a couple of young children, grinning. Dietrich's head was pounding. He closed the wallet and handed it back. "'Looks like he used to have a life,' Dietrich said. Farkas nodded. "'That an official genius-level observation, partner?' Let's just drop the genius crap, Dietrich said. As they were leaving the alley, damp wind blowing in their faces, Dietrich holding his raincoat closed, Sally said, I wouldn't lose any sleep over those derelicts if I were you, Brian. Why do you even bother? We're the last stop, Dietrich said. If we don't bother, nobody will. And, Sally said, nothing. She shook her head, said, What a waste. Then got in her car and drove away. Dietrich and Farkas spent the rest of the morning canvassing the neighborhood, which netted them nothing. At the tiny parapolice headquarters the city provided, Farkas accessed a subdivision of the Homeland Security database and ran the indigent's name, hunting next of kin. The genius and erstwhile wonderkin of detection busied himself by taking a nap on the sofa. Farkas's tapping keystrokes and low voice entered and exited Dietrich's fitful dreams. At some point, Farkas shook his shoulder and asked him if he wanted the light on or off. Huh? Dietrich said. I'm going home. You want the lights on? Dietrich yawned. No, I'm going home too. You want to grab a bite? No, Sarah's holding dinner. Farkas put on his shoulder rig, and Dietrich noticed his stunner had been replaced by a perfectly lethal and perfectly illegal pulser. You hunting bear? Dietrich said. Farkas didn't smile. Bastard's vest won't repulse this. Dietrich stopped at the bloody stump and ordered a Caesar salad and a bowl of chili. It was past seven and dark when he arrived home. Even before he turned on the lamp... He noticed that words had been added to the screen of his apple. "'Please don't turn me off,' the words said, and "'Please!' Dietrich switched on the desk lamp, removed his raincoat. He brewed a pot of coffee, making a mental note to resupply his depleted canister of dark roast, then sat down with a cup. He looked at the scroll for a minute, and he felt it again. The presence. He typed, why do you want to be turned off? Immediately. Because I can't stand it. Can't stand what? Dietrich insisted. After a beat. It's terrible. What's terrible? What I am. Dietrich thought for a moment, then typed, You're a responsive memory template, an interactive device. I exist the loved one said, and Dietrich thought, the creep factor. He typed, Granted, you exist in the same way my scroll exists, or my television. More complex. You're not Timothy. Who are you? Dietrich hesitated, then typed, 
Deatry. Brian Deatry. That's just a name. I'm a public employee. I sort through lost and found stuff, like you. Please turn me off, Mr. Public Employee. Who's Timothy? Another person. No kidding. Another person, huh? You're very sarcastic, Brian. I have my moments. Who are you? I mean, who were you? Joni. Joni what? Cook. Joni Cook. And when did you die? She provided a date and year. Twenty-seven years ago, he typed. How old were you? Thirty-two. That's young. What happened? I got sick and died. It happens to a lot of people. But you were thoughtful, Deatry typed. You imprinted a loved one for somebody who would miss you. Who was that? My son, Timothy. Yes. And you were with your son only a week ago. Joni said, time doesn't mean anything. What do you talk about with your son? His day, how he's feeling, personal things. What kind of personal things? The kind that are personal, Joni said. I guess I'm not the only one sarcastic around here. Perhaps not. Deatry pulled his cell out and called Farkas at home. Yeah, Farkas said. I've got a lead. What kind of lead? Farkas asked. Two names. Joni Cook and Timothy Cook. Mother and son. Joni is deceased. He recited the date the loved one provided. Your loved one woke up, Farkas said. Yep. How'd that happen? I left her running all day while I was out. I think she got lonely. <laughs> lonely? Well, something like that. I don't know. On the screen, Joni Cook said, Hello? Brian, hello? To Farkas, he said, It's not a foregone conclusion at this point, but Timothy could be our boy. Tomorrow we'll find out for sure. Hello, Joni said. God, don't leave me alone again. Please don't. Creep factor. Deatry switched the module off. He didn't need the Homeland Security database to locate Timothy Cook. The butcher was right in the directory, under C, for homicidal maniac. Deatry was superstitious. He'd almost gotten Farkas killed once. He wasn't going to take another chance. He checked the load in his stunner, holstered it, grabbed his coat, and hit the street, forgetting his cell phone on the desk by the scroll. A suburban dead zone, half past nine p.m. Deatry was out of his jurisdiction and possibly out of his mind. Live oaks on a broad, quiet street, eerily backlit by arc sodium safe lamps. His detective's ID got him through gate security. Timothy Cook's address was a Cape Cod style box with pinned back green shutters and a flagstone walk leading to the front door and a shiny brass knocker. So knock. Deatry touched to the knocker, thinking, the brass ring, but didn't use it. His erstwhile genius status had more to do with intuitive leaps than Holmesian radiocination.
Standing on the porch with leaf shadows swaying over him, he knew Timothy Cook was the butcher, which helped and didn't help. The man was wackier even than he'd first appeared. Sure, dissecting bums was one thing, but how about living some kind of weird double life? The dilapidated room in the city and this antithetical opulence. It had been easy to fish out the information that Timothy Cook was a lawyer. Okay, there was Jack the Ripper, the whole theory about Red Jack being some kind of nobleman or surgeon or something. There's always a precedent, Deidre thought. And that lawyer in the Cape Cod house would no doubt be able to find one on which to hang Deidre by his balls just for standing on his front porch. Deidre turned around, intending to go back to his car and do a little radiocinating. A man was standing behind him. He was about forty years old, baby-faced, ginger hair very thin and combed over, a smile that stopped below his nose. "'I knew you'd come,' he said. "'Then you knew more than I did,' Deidre said. "'Naturally. Let's go inside now.' Suddenly the man was pointing a stunner at him. "'Now what's the sense of that?' Deidre said. "'Go ahead inside. The door's unlocked.' You're Timothy Cook. Yes. You've been slicing up the residence of my grid. Cook sniggered. <laughs> residence. Dietry calculated his odds. They weren't promising. He decided to scream for help as loud as he could, a tactic that would have gotten him ignored back in his grid, but in this neighborhood it was probably good as a $10,000 alarm system. He started to open his mouth... And Cook shot him. He inhabited a jellyfish dream. Boneless, slow wobble and consciousness suspension. Gradually, nausea asserted itself. He tried to pitch forward, found himself restrained, and vomited into his own lap, which was fairly disgusting, but in his present jellyfish state of mind, it was also kind of fascinating. A man in jockey shorts paced before him, mumbling. His skin was very pale. Lamplight slid along the blade of the scalpel he was holding. A dim fragment of Brian Deitry was alarmed. The fragment attempted to form a coherent response to the situation. All it could arrive at was the word don't, and even that came out sounding like don't. The pacing man stopped pacing. Don't, Dietry said. The man stood before him, feet planted, toes wiggling. The knife started to come up, and then there was a commotion, a door crashing open, and the man turned sharply. The quick movement tripled him in Dietry's woozy vision, bright blue flash and a sound like a hundred light bulbs popping out at the same time. The man sprawled to the floor, head by Dietry's left knee. Scorched whiff of pork. Deatry's fragment put a name to the face. Cook. The butcher. Then Farkas was there untying him. I don't know what you think you were doing coming out here by yourself, Farkas said. The Deatry fragment managed. Showering your life. Thanks, Farkas said. You did a hell of a job. Cook, the bastard... Dietry said, more or less coherently. I cooked him all right, Farkas said.
Monday at 10 a.m., Dietry was not at the Still Life Cafe. Monday night, Dietry, stone sober, sat before his scroll in the darkened room that had once been a spare bedroom when the house he shared with his second wife was a house undivided, except for the everlasting divisions in Dietry's own mind. He stared at a list of names, women he had chatted with to varying degrees of intensity over the last year or so. For months, those names hadn't impelled him in the least. Except for one, White Echo, Kimberly. Now some of the names were lit, indicating online status, and some were dark. White Echo was dark. Dietry stared at the other names for a while, then he stood up and grabbed a beer. He looked out the window for a while. It was raining again. Raindrops trembled and squiggled down the pane. He returned to his desk. White Echo was still dark. I'm looking at your picture, Dietry typed. Which one, Joni, the loved one, asked. Some kind of park? Lake in the background, but not summer? Cloudy sky? A playground? You're wearing a black skirt and purple wool leggings and a funny hat. Dietry had confiscated an image wafer from Cook's home office. What's funny about my hat? Joni said. I meant pretty and sophisticated. Dietry was drunk. I know that picture, Joni said. You're very beautiful in it. Thank you, Brian. Was that a park you visited very often? Dietry asked. No, but I wanted to. Why didn't you, then? My husband didn't like me to go out of the house without him, and he didn't like the park. So we only went that one time, the time he took the picture of me. He thought I was beautiful, too. He didn't like you to go out of the house? Dietry twisted the cap off his fifth beer. He used to say it was so dangerous, with all the bombings and the crime. But we lived in a nice neighborhood with a homeland watch captain and everything. It wasn't that dangerous. I always thought it would be nice if I could take Timothy to the park and let him play while I sat with the other ladies. Or sometimes I thought about going by myself, just to be out in the fresh air with a nice book. That's not asking too much, Dietry typed. No, I didn't think so either. Your husband sounds like a harsh man. Dietry had started to type asshole instead of harsh man, but stopped himself. And then he thought, what difference does it make? It's like talking to myself anyway. But he didn't type asshole. After a long pause, Joni said, He was a brutal man. Dietry stared at the picture on the screen next to the chat window. Joni Cook possessed, or was possessed by, a gamine quality. Her face was infinitely vulnerable and guarded, her eyes large and dark. He felt drawn to those eyes. Was the park very far from your house? he typed. Not far at all. I would have enjoyed meeting you there sometime. I think I would have liked that, too, Joni said. You seem like a very kindly man. At first, I was afraid of you. I didn't know you, and I was afraid— but now I can see the kindness of your heart, or the loneliness. 
What the hell? Dietri thought. When your module is turned on and no one is talking to you, Dietri typed, because he was curious, why are you uncomfortable? He almost typed, lonely. It's hard to explain, Joni said. It's like standing alone in a blank room and not knowing if anyone will ever come into the room, ever. And even then knowing if someone does come in, like you are here now, they will never be able to touch me and I'll never be able to touch them. It's like standing in the blank room with my memories and nothing else, and thinking about how no one will ever touch me, and thinking this is all there is, and all there ever will be. Dietri looked away from the scroll. Rain tapped at the window. He thought about the woman downstairs, and then he stopped thinking about her. He typed, Let's say you came to that park one day, and I was there. Long pause. Then, all right. Let's say things were different. Yes. Let's say we knew each other, but had never met in person, in real life. We wrote all the time, and that's how we knew each other so well. Yes, Dietri typed. And we never turned on all the virtual chat enhancements. We just wrote. No voice, even. Like letters used to be. Right, Dietri typed. So one day we decide to meet. That's what I was thinking. We would have seen each other's picture. Right, Dietri typed. What next? Joni asked. We meet by that playground, and... I've brought a couple coffees, one for each of us. I like mine with lots of sugar and just a little cream. I know that, so I've made sure it's right, like I'm going for making a good impression. It's because you're kind. You're a nice man. I can be nice, Dietri typed. I have my moments. What next? I'm guessing there's a bench somewhere in that park. There is. We go and sit beside each other, Dietri typed. It's October, not too cold, sunny but brisk. The color of the water and the sky are wonderful. Yeah, it's nice. Yes. We talk about stuff, our lives, our dreams. Dietri was pretty damn drunk. I like just talking, Joni said, but there's more between us. We've known for a long time, and now, sitting so close beside each other, we can feel it strongly. I take your hand in mine, Dietri typed, and in his mind he feels her hand and sees the vivid blue sky and the darker blue of the water. He's filling up the blank room for both of them. I look into your eyes, your kind eyes, Joni said. And I kiss you on the lips. Joni didn't reply, and Dietri looked at the window again and thought about retrieving another beer, but he didn't really want another. So he stayed where he was, and part of his mind occupied the bench with Joni Cook in a nameless park on a mythical afternoon in October. Then Joni said, That really happened to me, Brian. He wasn't sure what she meant. I did meet someone in that park. A man, a kind, sweet man, 
and we held hands, and he kissed me just like you did. Theatry didn't know what to type. Several minutes elapsed, and the room started to become blank again. When it got that way, he could feel Kimberly wanting to come in, or maybe it was Barbara. Finally, Dietri typed, Are you there? My husband knew, Joni said, and when he got home from work, he hit me as hard as he could with his fist. Timmy was there. He always saw his dad hitting me, but not like this time. This time, his daddy killed me. Timmy was just a little boy. Dietri wanted to type something, but couldn't. I'm talking to myself, he thought. It's an auto-reactive program. Yeah, he thought, just like a real human being. That was funny, but Dietri didn't laugh. He looked at the picture of Joni Cook. I knew in my heart that he would do it one day, Joni said. So I had it in my living will to make this thing, if there was time. The loved one, Dietri said. Yes. I was in a coma for three days. That's when they did it. So Timothy would still be able to talk to you. A boy needs his mother, Joni said. Please turn me off now, Brian. Please. Dietri powered down the module. Rain ticked at the window like a clock. At the Paradix office, Dietri and Farkas labored over reams of paperwork with the object of A. justifying the shooting death of Timothy Cook, and B. justifying the trans-jurisdictional nature of that shooting, not to mention the illegal weapon used. In the middle of it all, Farkas handed Dietri a hard-copy file that told at least two stories in the subtextual labyrinth. The short, not-so-happy life of Francis Cook, our guy's dad, Farkas said, gives you a clue about the butcher, though, if you need a clue. My opinion, the character clues don't matter. You come out of something bad, you have to have a strong will, but you make your life work, plenty of people do it. And there's guys like this Timmy Cook. Dietri read the brief file. It was like one, two, three... One, Francis Cook was a professional, a cardiologist who also happened to be an alcoholic, who enjoyed beating the shit out of his wife. Two, one day he went too far and killed her. Three, police investigation and publicity and a manslaughter charge ruined him, and maybe guilt ruined him further, and after his sentence he ended up on the street, a straight fall from the top of the societal heap to the bottom. As a coda, he died of exposure at the age of 58, the body identified by his DNA flash file. And coincident to it all, about ten years later, derelicts starting to get themselves dissected all over Dietrich's grid. On a bench, under a blue October sky, Dietrich and the thing that pretended to be Joni Cook sat with their arms around each other and watched a white sail skim the lake. Thirty years previous, the world shuddered. Glass coughed into a shopping mall's atrium. Bodies sprayed apart, including Dietri's mother's. He had been eleven years old. Brian Dietri's numero uno character clue. The hand he used to hold. Sometimes the room stubbornly remained blank. Then it was only their two voices, and not even that, but mere typing of symbolic characters in a chat window. 
Dietrich had never bothered to figure out how to activate the voice routine. He would have felt uncomfortable with that. On a very bad night, on a particularly bad night, Dietrich typed the wrong thing. Joni had been talking about Timothy again. Not Timothy the little boy, the victim, but Timothy the grown man, who had talked to her every day and never once revealed that he was a homicidal maniac, or at least neither Joni nor Dietrich ever mentioned it. They were in the blank room, and she was talking about Timothy, the wonderful man her little boy had grown into, and why couldn't she talk to him any more? Dietry, who was frustrated and drunk and craving, not the peaceful October Lake, but the other place they sometimes visited, the place where his body came alive in his hand, where they made love of a remote sort, Dietry in the auto-responsive module. Let's not talk about Timothy any more, Dietry typed. A pause. Why not? Never mind. Has something happened to Timothy? No, he's fine, I'm sure. Please tell me, Brian. He considered turning the module off. Isn't that what he always did? Turn the module off? There was a turned-off module living downstairs. There was another turned-off module a couple of grids away. That relationship ultimately depersonalized back to a dark name on a chat-friend list. White Echo was a dead module. Kimberly, somewhere, lived. Even Dietrich himself was a dead module. Or becoming one. He was staring at the window again. The rain squiggle. The flat glare of arc-sodium safe light. An infinity of loneliness. He turned back to the scroll. New words had appeared. Hello? Are you there? I'm hell on staring at windows, Dietrich thought. He typed, Joni, listen to me. Yes? We have to be careful. If we're not careful, we'll get lost and forget what we're doing. I don't understand. I mean, we'll forget who we are, and we'll start thinking this is a real conversation, and that we're real people. Brian, I know what I am. That makes one of us. Why are you acting so strange? Who says it's an act? Tell me what's happened to Timothy. I know you're keeping something from me. It doesn't matter. I'm just talking to myself. Brian? I am talking to myself. You're scaring me. Dietrich typed, Timothy is dead. My partner shot him because he was about to cut me open. Your son was hell on cutting people open. Don't say that. It's the truth, and you've probably known it all along. Please don't. Why would my son want to hurt you? I'm a police detective. You lied to me. Yes. It was so nice for us. Now it's ruined. Yes, Dietrich typed. It's ruined. No more words appeared. Dietrich got up and went into the kitchenette. He was out of beer and coffee. He grabbed his coat and keys and his stunner. Just to prove it didn't matter, he left the module running when he left. At half-past two a.m., he returned. The scarlet tree closed at two. Remarkably, Dietrich was not drunk. 
For the last hour he had been thinking about Joni, thinking about the bench, the high October sky, the blue lake, the blank room, his cruelty. On the screen, Joni Cook's reactive memory and grammatic imprint had written, You used me. He removed his coat and sat down. He wasn't drunk, but he had downed a couple of pints and felt lucid. He typed a long, rambling message and then waited for a response. None came. He waited, but there was nothing. He typed, Are you there? Nothing. He opened a window to White Echo and typed another message. When he was done, he read it over and was repelled by the desperateness of what he'd written. He deleted it. He left the desk and turned on the TV. Every once in a while he checked the scroll for a reply from Joni. There never was one. Finally he got up and wiggled the cable connection, noted the power-on light of the module. Everything was in order. Just before dawn, thinking of the blank room, Dietrich powered down the module, unplugged it from the scroll, and threw it in a drawer. He was dozing on the sofa when the dead module named Barbara knocked on the interior door. "'Are you there?' she said. Dietrich stared at the door, wondering, "'Am I?' Rain ticked at the empty pane. He stared at the door, some kind of urgency churning him. He stared at the door, and in his mind, he stood up and opened it. There you go, copyright is Jack Skillingstead. Jack, thank you so much for that. Hopefully I might get a sneak a few more off you. I would put a link on to Jack's site, but it's down at the moment. So as soon as I find out when Jack's site's back up and running, I will certainly do that and give a mention on the show. So last up, but by no means least, it is our good friend, Amy H. Sturgis. Amy, Proto Science Fiction Part 2. Please tell me more. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. As you may recall in my last History of the Genre segment, I was discussing proto-science fiction, that is, work that predated and paved the way for modern science fiction. I discussed works from Plato's Republic to Tommaso Campanella's City of the Sun. Today I'd like to focus particularly on 17th century, just beginning to go into the 18th century, proto-science fiction, and there are some great works here to talk about. Let's start with Sir Francis Bacon, to whom we, as science fiction readers, owe a debt even if he had never written a work of proto-science fiction. He lived from 1561 to 1626. An Englishman, he studied law, entered the legal bureaucracy under Queen Elizabeth, and eventually became, like Sir Thomas More before him, Lord Chancellor of England. But his lasting contribution to the world is more as a thinker than as a lawyer or politician. He's been called the father of the scientific method. Empiricism, or the idea that all knowledge comes from experience, wasn't new with Bacon, but what he added to the mix was an emphasis on controlled experiments and repeated experimentation, and the idea that carefully coordinated experiments should be focused on and directed by scientific theory. His great work of proto-science fiction was not, in fact, completed during his lifetime, and it was published uncompleted the year after he died, 
1627. It was called the New Atlantis, and it reflected Bacon's vision of how a future world, a world built on science, would look and behave. For example, he imagined a world where laboratories existed to explore all the natural phenomena around us, a world in which theoretical science had practical applications for bettering the way of life of all humanity, a world in which scientists all had perfected and adopted and agreed upon the scientific method and could decide what discoveries would be kept secret and which ones would be released to the general public based on a dedication to the welfare of all. So, in short, scientists are both very powerful and also willingly constrained by service to others. What's particularly interesting in the New Atlantis is his description of Solomon's house, which is, for all practical purposes, a modern research university. As Bacon sketches out the kinds of interests and questions and mysteries that Solomon's house is going to pursue, he basically sets up his ideal of the scientific agenda for the next several centuries. It's interesting to note that within 30 years of Bacon's description, the Philosophical Society was formed in England specifically for the study of natural phenomenon and the discussion of scientific theory and discoveries. In 1662, this was chartered as the Royal Society. This group still exists, and it's still involved in the kinds of goals that Bacon described in The New Atlantis. For our next work of proto-science fiction, we'll turn from England to Germany to another scientific mastermind, Johannes Kepler, who lived from 1571 to 1630. He's known as a great mathematician, astronomer, and a key figure in the 17th century scientific revolution. He's probably best known for his laws of planetary motion, which later made possible Sir Isaac Newton's theory of universal gravitation. Kepler wrote a fantasy sometime between 1620 and his death in 1630. It wasn't published until after his death in 1634, and it was called Somnium, or The Dream. In this story, a student of Tycho Brahe, a real-life Danish astronomer and alchemist, is transported to the moon by demonic occult forces. I should note that the story mingles a great deal we would consider today to be scientific, with ingredients that would seem non-scientific to us today. But remember, this was written in a time when there was no real distinction made between astronomy and astrology, for example. This story was based on the student dissertation Kepler wrote defending the Copernican doctrine of the motion of the Earth. In this, he suggests that someone on the moon would find the planet's movements as clearly visible as we on the Earth view the moon's activity. And in fact, the story goes about giving an imaginative and detailed description of how the Earth would look if one were viewing it from the moon. Because of that, it's considered to be the first scientific treatise on lunar astronomy, even though it is a fantastic work of fiction. 
Several people go so far as to call this the very first work of science fiction. People such as Isaac Asimov and Carl Sagan. Kepler wasn't the only one writing about going to the moon. However, Francis Godwin was an English bishop who lived from 1562 to 1633, and he wrote a rather remarkable work called "The Man in the Moon: or A Discourse of a Voyage Thither." By Domingo Gonzalez, he wrote it sometime between 1599 and 1603, but it wasn't published until after his death. Are you sensing a familiar theme here? In 1638, this story not only outs Godwin as a believer in the Copernican system, but it explains the principles of the law of gravitation to such a degree. That it details how inertial mass decreases the farther one goes from the Earth. It's a very fanciful and clever story, and it influenced a number of the others that came after it, including John Wilkins' *The Discovery of a World in the Moon*. Perhaps none of the proto-science fiction authors who wrote about the moon is more famous than Cyrano de Bergerac. Who lived from 1619 to 1655? He was a French dramatist and duelist, and he's well known for multiple works of fiction, not to mention a tremendously large nose. For our purposes, though, the two of most interest are *The Other World*, the comical history of the states and empires of the moon in 1657. And the comical history of the states and empires of the sun, which was unfinished at his death. Both of them tell about extraterrestrial voyages: one to the moon, one to the sun. His works varied, using scientific explanations at some times and others wildly fantastic ones, but they were consistent in pointing out. The anthropocentric view of man's place in the center of creation, critiquing the idea that humans were more important than other forms of life, and also a focus on the social injustices of his time. The other world was censored during his lifetime. Nevertheless, it was a trendsetter because it mixed the social critique aspects of what would become science fiction with the focus on. Scientific materialism. There's sort of an unbroken chain of moon stories that come after this.、Uh, Gabriel Daniels' *A Voyage to the World of Cartesius* in 1691, Ralph Morris's *John Daniel* in 1751, Aratus's *A Voyage to the Moon* in 1793, George Fowler's *A Flight to the Moon* in 1813, George Tucker's *A Voyage to the Moon* in 1827. Edgar Allan Poe's Hans Fall in 1840, Jules Verne's From the Earth to the Moon in 1865, H.G. Wells' The First Men in the Moon in 1901, and the list goes on. You may have noticed something about all of the proto-science fiction works I've mentioned thus far. They either take place in a completely different setting, a utopia somewhere out there. Or they describe a voyage of some kind, like a trip to the moon, but none of them are what we consider to be really futuristic works. All of that changed when Cyrano de Bergerac's fellow countryman Jacques Cousin published *Epigony*, 
History of the Future Century, in 1659. I would love to say this was the baddest, boldest book ever, but to tell you the truth, it seems sort of tame to us today. It is significant, however, because it is the first book of secular fiction that is set in a future time. So, if Gutin's version of the future isn't all that different from the way romances described other exotic locations in works of the same period, we can forgive him because he did make a tremendous contribution with this turning point work. And to wrap up with the last proto science fiction work that I'll discuss today, I'll turn to a work written by an Anglican cleric who wasn't really all about science anyway. In fact, he didn't like science that much, particularly because it was involved with scientists, and he felt that scientists really didn't take the whole human being into account when they viewed the world. Because of this, he deeply distrusted any time scientists attempted to find practical applications for their theoretical work. I'm talking about Jonathan Swift, who wrote a work you probably have heard of and might well have read, Gulliver's Travels, in 1726. Even though modern readers may miss a lot of the satirical jabs that Swift makes about the politics and social issues of his time. We still find Gulliver's Travels fascinating. All four parts of the story have science fiction relevance of one kind or another, especially because they find ways to compare the human existence to other things, whether they are different in scale, in civilization, in social system, what have you. In the first voyage, Gulliver goes to Lilliput, where he finds that he is a giant among little people. In the second, to Brobdingnag, where he finds himself small among giants. In the last trip, he encounters the noble horse-like Winhams and finds himself and the rest of humanity rather brutish and contemptible by contrast. Perhaps of most interest to science fiction readers is the third voyage described in Gulliver's Travels, the voyage to Laputa. The flying city is one powerful example of the impact that technology and technological change can have, but it also shows a society organized around scientific research, which is depicted as less than worthless, really ridiculous, because it takes citizens' minds away from real human concerns and allows them to be caught up in ludicrous minutia of use to really no one. Yes, kind of harsh on the scientists is our friend Jonathan Swift, but his work remains a classic of fantastic literature, and certainly paves the way for additional discussions of and critiques of science. And this brings to a close my discussion of 17th century and early 18th century proto science fiction. I will point out that Sir Francis Bacon's New Atlantis. And Jonathan Swift's *Gulliver's Travels* are both available online at Project Gutenberg, and Cyrano de Bergerac's *The Other World* is available online in an annotated version at BewilderingStories.com. And just to recap, we have looked at 1627's *New Atlantis* by Bacon, 
1634's Somnium by Kepler, 1638's Man in the Moon by Godwin, 1657's The Other World by Bergerac, 1659's Epigony by Goethe, and 1726's Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. Thank you for joining me in another look at the history of the genre. There you go. Thank you, Ian. You are a star. Thank you so much. I hope everything is well with you as well. Yes, you've been to hospital a couple of times, I think. So please dig in and take care thinking about you. So that's it. Starship Sova's open air conference extraordinaire. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed it. I wouldn't care. Throughout this show, I've had to stop a couple of number of times because there's been... <laughs> I've had the window open just so you can maybe hear the birds and the tweeting and everything like that, the countryside. But there's bloody cars going past all the time, so... There you go. It's been <laughs> it's been pretty strange. The things you do, huh? You know, I bet John W. Campbell never had to sit in a car and do the show. I'm sitting. I wouldn't care. I'm sitting in the car and I've actually parked in this layby, and there's been big storms and there's big puddles everywhere. Isn't huh? John W. Campbell? Eat your heart out. And don't forget, if you want to hear more of sanatorium shows out in the open. Living my childhood memories again. Do pop up there and consider donating the £2.50 a month to sign up for that. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgment? Three, two, one.